This is an ABC podcast. Sarah Holland Bat was raised mainly on the Gold Coast, but surfing and sunbaking were not her thing. Sarah grew up with a dad who was absorbed in the life of the mind. Tony was a minerals engineer, but he loved to talk about books and philosophy and history with his only child, Sarah, right from when she was just a little girl. Sarah turned out to have a brilliant mind like her dad's, but poetry is her thing. She's won Australia's biggest poetry prize, the Prime Minister's Literary Award. She's been offered fellowships overseas and has her work published in The New Yorker. The relationship between Sarah and her dad changed when she was 18 and Tony was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Sarah and her mum cared for him at home for as long as they could. But when the time came to put Tony into a nursing home, the family found themselves battling an aged care system that let Sarah's dad down in the worst ways possible. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Let's go back in time, way back in time, to when your mum and dad met. What story did they tell you about how that happened? So mum and dad have the most implausible uh, meet-cute kind of story that I've ever heard. (laughs) Mum was a teacher and she was teaching in Gatton uh, and she had a friend who had moved to Mount Isa who invited mum to go to Mount Isa for a a short holiday for 10 days. Um, And dad is English. Dad was born in Yorkshire uh, and and was working in London. He was a minerals engineer and he had a work trip to take a group of his PhD students to Mount Isa to test out some of the technology that dad had developed in his own PhD at Mount Isa Mines. And so this completely implausible meeting over 10 days unfolded in Mount Isa where uh, mum met dad first of all at a barbecue. Uh, And obviously it was a pretty small social scene in Mount Isa back in the kind of 70s when they met. And so she met him at a barbecue. And then a couple of days later, she she met him again at dinner at an an Italian restaurant with a group of friends. Uh, And then there was a sort of another Another group picnic out at Fountain Springs outside Mount Isa. And then on the day before mum was scheduled to leave and come back to Brisbane, dad asked her out for a drink solo. And the next day mum came back to Brisbane thought nothing of it, thought how nice this man was that she'd met. And the next week she got a letter from dad from Mount Isa saying that he'd cancelled his flights back to London, that he was coming to Brisbane to see her and that he wanted to ask her to marry him. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I mean, it could have made your mum run for the hills. Do you think she was sort of a little bit taken aback by this sudden declaration? She said no. Um, five, so he did come to Brisbane and she said no about five times before he finally kind of wore her down. And apparently he just kept repeating that he'd never been more sure about anything in his life and that he knew that he had to marry her. And so, you know, mum had led a pretty kind of relatively sheltered life. She'd only ever lived in Queensland. I don't think she'd ever even travelled interstate. And he was this basically total stranger kind of insisting that she marry him and come to England to live with him. And, you know, it was probably Probably a pretty attractive proposition, all things considered. (laughs) Well, was this out of character for your dad, do you think? Was he a spontaneous, kind of impulsive person like that? Absolutely not. So the funniest part about this is that dad was the most forensically organised, diligent, systemic, kind of pedantic person. <laughs> like my, my spontaneous is not an adjective <laughs> that I think of when I think of my dad at all. But, you know, he just he just knew. And so he kind of wore her down and came to visit in Brisbane and met her family. And her family were 
absolutely nonplussed to to see this total stranger basically asking for her hand in marriage. But she said yes. And so they first met in August. By September, they were engaged. And then Dad had to fly home because he had teaching to do. He was an academic at Imperial College in London at that point. And so he flew home to England. And by January, Mum had married him in London, if you can imagine. So from August to January, they met got engaged, mum packed up all of her earthly belongings and got on a flight to London to marry a total stranger. That's a big Um, risk on her part too, isn't it? Huge. And, you know, her family could only afford to send one relative with her so that both parents couldn't go to the wedding because it was really prohibitively expensive to fly to London back then. And so mum's mum, my grandmother, went on the plane with mum to London and yeah, she got married to this stranger. And you know what? They, they stayed married for 50 years. You know, it's extraordinary. What is it? it do, you, do you think that they saw in one another, or especially your dad, but then your mum fairly quickly too? What did they see to know that that connection was worth pursuing despite the distance and, and the relative lack of familiarity with one another? Well, I think part of it for mum, and this is a very funny, a very comic kind of part of it, because mum's not a superstitious person, nor nor a kind of spiritual person particularly. But a couple of months before she'd met dad, a friend had taken her to a psychic, just for fun, just for laughs. And the psychic had given her a reading that said, and mum at this point had no boyfriend whatsoever. (laughs) And and the psychic gave her a reading saying that she would marry a man who came from overseas, who wore a white coat, and who had had many letters after his name and dad's last name was Holland Bat and he had a PhD in all these postnomials. So you, can't, <laughs> you can't get, you know, so in a sense, I think when mum put those two things together, it felt a bit like it was kind of predestined, but they had beautifully kind of complementary personalities. You know, mum is incredibly gregarious, probably the most extroverted person I know, you know, just a celebrity everywhere she goes because everyone knows Jenny, that kind of person. Whereas dad was more introverted, more sort of scholarly and studious, but they just had a kind of perfect kind of synergy and and lots of very odd coincidences. They were born on the same day, essentially, mum was born on the 26th of May and dad was born on the 25th. But due to the time difference between England and Australia, they were actually born on the same day, exactly 10 years apart. They had this kind of all of these very odd coincidences and then just a really lovely kind of meeting of the minds and energy. So when your mum took that leap and packed up her things after consulting, you know, Gatton's best psychic and and headed (laughs) headed off to, to London, where did they live as newlyweds? Oh, so this is back in the glory days of academia where dad's job at Imperial College at the time gave him a beautiful flat, would you believe, on Exhibition Road across the road from Hyde Park. If you know London, that's basically right where the the V&A Museum is, right where the Natural History Museum is, a block or two away from the Royal Albert Hall. They gave him the flat as part of his salary. But sadly, I'm an academic now, that, that those days have gone. <laughs> but well, they had this, yeah, beautiful place right in the heart of London. And I mean, what an extraordinary shift from from for mum, who'd just grown up living in Cooparoo and then worked in Gatton and visited Mount Isa and then all of a sudden was in the centre of London. So why weren't you born into this salubrious flat in the heart of London, Sarah? Because dad had made a promise to my grandfather. My grandfather said, you know, you have to bring her back. And so dad, dad was very kind of 
he fulfilled his word always. And so he brought mum home. They, they lived there, I think, only for three or four years in the end in London. And mum apparently cried on the plane all the way home because she didn't want to come back to Australia. She'd she'd really adopted life in England with gusto, including a, a very affected accent, um, <laughs> which, which still survives because back then, you know, you would send these little, you know, those little micro cassettes, the little micro kind of tapes. Mum and dad would send little micro cassettes to their to, to mum's parents back in Australia just telling them what was going on in, in England and I've listened to them and my mother sounds you know more more English than the Queen it's <laughs> it's hysterical that happened very very quickly for mum and she was devastated to come back home because she loved life overseas but dad had made this promise to her father and so he brought her home and um, and they went from London to the Gold Coast would you believe a pretty rude shock um, and why the Gold then. Coast so dad had dad had gotten a job at a minerals uh, minerals company called Mineral Deposits on the Gold Coast, and so they moved there. And you know, back then the Gold Coast was a backwater pretty much. And my grandfather used to say you could you could have a picnic down the middle of the main road, you know, the highway, because it was it was sort of single lane and it was very very different to to the way it is now. And so I think for mum it would have been a pretty major shock and dad, but dad loved it because obviously, you know, growing up in England, dreary England, this was like paradise, you know, sunshine every day and, and the same temperature all year round, basically. What words come to your mind or what images come to your mind, Sarah, when you think back to the Gold Coast that you grew up in? Oh God. <laughs> Look, it, the Gold Coast is a funny place, you know, it's, it's sort of a a spectacularly tacky kind of theme park paradise, but it's also beautiful. It's like this astonishing beauty backed up with this kind of bloated casinos and yobs, really, and the kind of bacchanal of schoolies. You know, all of that was going on when I was a kid. You know, the Indy 500, the the races. It's got a particular kind of vibe to it that I think is closest to Miami in the States. You know, it's kind of glitzy, got a kind of tacky feel at times. And and back when I was a kid, it was not a sophisticated place to grow up, that's for sure. There was the casino, there was, you know, the Indy 500, there were not many arts and cultural things going on on the Gold Coast at all. But there was this stunning stretch of beach and the hinterland. So it is in a naturally kind of beautiful place, but it was not a place that I think, at least back in the 80s when I grew up, really fed the intellect. Was life at home a contrast then to what was going on in the the streets and and shopping (laughs) centres and casinos outside? Oh, completely. I mean, I grew up with Dad, who who had hundreds of books, was continually, his brain was working all the time. He was always trying to teach me things which I was quite resistant to learn. You know, when I was a small kid, he was trying to teach me computer coding, computer science. He would try and teach me algebra, you know, and that was not really what I felt like learning as a child. But he also wanted to talk about philosophy and literature. And he just had this kind of brain that would genuinely kind of never stopped. You know, those people who just, you can't believe how capacious their brains are. Dad was a bit like that. And so, yeah, I I grew up with a kind of really formidable um, intellectual mentor in my dad, uh, in spite of not not finding much of that necessarily at school or in, in the kind of community that I grew up in. Did you have free reign of his library, Sarah? 
Absolutely. And, you know, he would he would kind of give me books that in retrospect were sort of wildly inappropriate for, for, an, <laughs> for a nine or 10 year old and all sorts of great novels. And I would I would pilfer. He had P.G. Woodhouse. He had Kingsley Amos, um, all these sorts of great, you know, he, he had English taste because he'd grown up in England. And so there was a, there were a lot of English writers in the mix, but there were a lot of sort of philosophers on his shelf. I remember him giving me Plato when I was about 12 and thinking that that, that would sink in. <laughs> I would make an I would make an effort at everything he would he would give me. So it, it was incredible and I'm so grateful to have grown grown up completely surrounded by books in that way. It was a it was a real kind of escape, I think, from I don't want to overstate it because the Gold Coast is in many ways a really kind of beautiful place to grow up, but it was not a place I think where I would otherwise have become a writer if I hadn't had access to that kind of intellectual library that dad had presented me with either. It wasn't just you in the house that your dad like to spend time with. Tell me who he'd he'd hang out with after he'd come home from lunch on a work oh, day. God. So dad worked so dad worked about a kilometer and a half from home and we got a cat and dad was just so, so incredibly kind, you know, loved animals, loved the cat. And so instead of having lunch at work, he would walk, you know, a kilometer and a half either way. So sort of quite a long distance to sit at home at lunch to give the cat some company in the middle of the workday. If you can imagine this sort of high-powered you know, <laughs> engineer g- going home every day to, to, to spend time with the cat. It was very, very sweet. I'm sure she appreciated it. And so what would he do to relax, Sarah? Like was TV a part of, of what you guys did at home? No, no, it was not. And dad dad sort of vehemently hated the television. He didn't really understand what relaxation was. I'm not sure that I ever saw dad actually relax. His idea of relaxing was to teach himself an instrument or to to learn astronomy or to read books about jazz or I mean he, he didn't really understand what relaxing was but he had a he had a million kind of hobbies and he also liked to tinker uh, and make make sort of strange inventions and he knew how to like I said he knew how to computer code he knew how to to write programming software that was his idea of relaxing <laughs> like he the man did not understand a holiday he never had a holiday well, what were holidays I mean did you get family holidays Yes, holidays were mum and I enjoying ourselves, and dad bringing his computer and 50 books and and resentfully kind of coming along for a walk on the beach and then desperately going back to, to get to his books. I mean, he, it was it was funny, though. I mean, I'm slightly overstating it because he, he was great at spending time with the family, but he didn't really know in any sense how to relax. It was like he wanted to live every moment of his life as, as completely as he could. If he was into tinkering and, and machinery, were cars and road trips something that could drag him away from his books? Yeah, they were. Um, and so we would do, you know, in Queensland, we do little road trips up the Sunshine Coast. And and later on, uh, when, when the family moved to Colorado, uh, we would do big, bigger road trips there. But even on a road trip... Uh, he would be trying to quiz me on algebra or teach me advanced equations. I mean, we we didn't do the fun. Um, I spy. Just, just I spy. <laughs> no, we did not do I spy in my family. We d- we did. Here's how you here's how you kind of um, multiply a fraction. <laughs> did that drive you crazy, or or was it was it what was normal and and maybe I don't know maybe it was fascinating and and stimulating for for you as a kid. 
I think I did really enjoy it and I loved that dad was always trying to teach me things, but I also resented it as any kid would because no one really wants to be doing algebra on their Saturday when they're trying to have a nice road trip to the Sunshine Coast. So, <laughs> um, so probably I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have at the time. You know, now I wish I'd paid a bit more attention because maths is not my strong suit as an adult. <laughs> What kind of background had he come from, Sarah? Was was his a family that valued books and ideas and, and thinking as much as, as yours did? Well, no. So, I mean, Dad had the most... Um the most tremendously kind of sad childhood, actually, to be honest. His his father was in the Royal Engineers and died in the war when dad was eight. And his dad was, was an architect, but also a brilliant painter. He was a beautiful watercolourist and had had his works exhibited at the Royal Academy like this. I think that's where the kind of intellect and artistic side came from, from dad's father. And so he lost, he lost his own father at eight. And then uh, unfortunately, his mother became a raging alcoholic and dad ended up being taken away from her and, and sent to a boarding school by an aunt who thought that that an intervention needed to be made. But, you know, he would come home from boarding school on school holidays and find his mother passed out drunk and would have to kind of go through the cupboards and find the rum and try and bury the rum bottles out in the garden and empty them down the sink to, to kind of hide them from his mother. So he had a he had a sort of tremendously lonely uh, childhood and he also grew up during the war. And so, you know, for a couple of years there, he was sent down to Worthing on the beach and slept in a Morris shelter, freezing, frigid kind of winters out in the front lawn because they were protecting themselves against being bombed and so forth. So he had a childhood really of privation and 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 misery, I think it's fair to say. And, you know, British boarding school, while it was a good reprieve from his mum, is not really a... It's not really known for its, you know, warmth and loving care. I think school was pretty punitive and difficult too. And that's why I've always had, I've always admired my dad so much because a lot of people in those kinds of circumstances would carry those resentments with them for the rest of their lives and would be marked by them and, and reasonably so. But, um, but dad kind of managed to drag himself out of there and through his brilliance, you know, got scholarships to go to, to university. He enrolled in the Air Force uh, first and then went to university slightly older, I think at 22 or 23, um, after a couple of years in the Air Force and just got on with his life and never really looked back or, or resented um, that. And I think that's pretty mm. extraordinary Did kind that, of character. the harshness and, and loneliness of that childhood mark his temperament at all? I think it's really interesting. He 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 certainly was never drunk. He liked to have a drink but would never get drunk and I think that's that's pretty common uh, among children of alcoholics that there's a kind of temperance that's born of watching someone completely lose control that alcohol has less of an appeal but but he was also I think very kind of even tempered and very methodical and just went about getting what he wanted to get out of life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's probably a reaction to the chaos is is the kind of ultra organization as well. You know, his his slightly pedantic nature, his hyper organized nature was probably a re reaction to growing up in that chaotic environment. You say your your mum's personality was a nice kind of compliment to your dad's. What was it like to go to the shops with your mum as a teenager or, or a kid, Sarah? 
Well, as a kid, I mean, my mum was sort of minor celebrity on the Gold Coast because she taught so many, because she was a teacher. And so she taught so many high school students for many, many, you know, years and years and years. And so Pacific Fair, which at the time was the kind of cultural centre of the Gold Coast, you know, For people who aren't familiar with Pacific Fair, give me a flavour of what Pacific Fair is. Oh, my God. Pacific Fair was the place to be um, back in the 1990s and the 1980s. It was a place to be seen and to see people. It's a shopping centre. Um, but one that has kind of an outdoor area, big. In, it's massive, and I think now it's it's the biggest shopping centre maybe in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> so it's 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 this kind of. Um, quite bloated bloated shopping centre these days but back then you know it was probably a bit more modest but still on the Gold Coast it was basically the place you would go it was the thing that that you could do as a as a kid or a teenager you'd go to the go to pack fair and watch a movie or some of mum's students would go there and go shoplifting (laughs) some of them some of them some of them would work in the shops some of them would steal from the shops um and so she knew she not only knew all of the sort of the the shop the shop workers, the people working in the stores, but she also knew the police who worked at Pacific Fair, who'd handled the shop shoplifters because she would deal with them when they came back to school. So she basically knew everyone kind of seemingly to me, she knew everyone sort of under 30. And so walking through Pacific Fair with mum was just a sort of just these these waves of, oh, Mrs. Hollenbat, Mrs. Hollenbat. And every time I would hear Mrs. Hollenbat, my heart would sink because I knew it meant 25 minutes of standing there twiddling my thumbs while mum had a big conversation with. Then we'd walk five metres and then there would be another Mrs. Hollenbat. So it was quite, it was quite hilarious, really. Um, and dad, dad would, dad and I would just sort of roll our eyes and try and go off into a music shop or go and look in the bookshop and, and get away from it. But Your mum bought that uh, sociability to her meeting with the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. What was going on there with your mum and Malcolm Turnbull? What happened? Oh my God! So this is this is the most classic Jenny Hollandbat story that I know how to tell. So. I, so this was at the Prime Minister's Literary Awards in 2016. And for those literary awards, you know that you've been shortlisted, but you don't know whether you've won. Um, and so it's like the Oscars, it's announced on the night. And so I was allowed a plus one and I took mum down to Canberra for it. So you'd be um, nominated, your your second I, book yes. of poetry had been nominated. Yeah, I'd been, sh- I'd been shortlisted, but I didn't know whether I'd won or not. And the other poets on the on the list were pretty f- formidable. I mean, it was, there were, the, Les Murray was on the list, Robert Adamson, you know, Michael Farrell, Simon West. And I'd sort of looked at the list and thought, oh, there's no way, but I'll go down and enjoy myself. We'll have a nice party and, and that'll be great. And so I was sitting with mum and waiting, waiting for the announcement. And in my head, I was thinking, oh, I hadn't even written a speech for it because I was so sure that the book hadn't won. Um, and then Malcolm Turnbull called my name and I thought, oh my God. And so I had to get up there and I was trying to give trying to give a speech for this prize uh, that I hadn't prepared uh, spontaneously. And I'm shaking Malcolm Turnbull's hand and thinking in my head, holy hell, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And as I'm doing that, I'm, I become aware of mum who's sitting in the first row. And mum is not known for her skills with technology or with iPhones or with cameras. All of the, uh, my childhood photos have mum's thumb in them. And so mum is sitting in the front row, fumbling with her camera, waving her hand like at the pair of us and shouting, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I want to get a photo. And so Malcolm Turnbull becomes aware of this because the rest of the audience is silent and my mum is sitting in the front row waving her hand in front of her face. Um, and so he he says to me, shall we bring mum up? And I was like, oh, my God, here we go again, Mrs Hollenbach. And so mum so comes up on stage and 
shakes Mal- Malcolm Turnbull. He's very generous. He shook Mum's hand, and and then I stand at the microphone to give my speech, and I'm trying to thank my publisher and the Australia Council. And as I'm doing that, I can hear Mum in my ear say um, to Malcolm Turnbull, as I'm giving my speech. Bear in mind, um, I used to read to her as a child. <laughs> so. so while I'm giving this sort of speech of my kind of literary career, <laughs> mum is busy chatting to the prime minister behind me. Mrs. Saying it's Mrs. all Holland due to me. Again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's just classic. And then, and then afterwards, of course, you, you leave and the other, the other prizes are being announced. And then afterwards, there's this lovely point at which you mingle and have, you know, have, have a glass of champagne and whatever. And all of these people were coming up to mum and congratulating her because they thought she'd won the poetry prize. <laughs> <laughs> Hysterical. <laughs> You'd spent as a family uh, a number of years when you were a teenager living in Denver in the States. Was that a big culture shock for you coming from the Goldie? How did you take to that? It was. I was desperate to go, though. So I remember it being raised at dinner. Dad was saying that this this job opportunity had come up. And I rem- I must have only been 11, I think. And I remember, you know, or 12 maybe. And I remember thinking in my head, oh, we've got to do this. I want to do this. I'd like to get out of here. So I, I was aware of that, that I thought an escape to Colorado would be, would be great. And so it was a huge culture shock. It was huge. I mean, we like to think that America and Australia are so alike, but actually they're not really. And back then there was less, I suppose, cross-pollination of culture. Like we weren't we weren't totally uh, suffused with American culture in Australia back then and likewise. And so I went over there and everything was quite foreign. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you want to know what's cool and you want to listen to the same music and you want to have the same cultural references and none of them were the same really. There were a few things that I had in common with my peers. It was a free dress uh, kind of, you didn't have to wear a uniform. All of those things were quite different and and there were really quite subtle, you know, subtle differences that emerged as well. Had, had Pack Fair prepared you for free clothes, <laughs> free dress? No, it hadn't. It hadn't. Would you believe that the, the fashion du jour on the Gold Coast was not quite the fashion in Colorado? you do at that age want to look cool or seem cool. And so I had to learn a whole new kind of system of references. And and it was quite funny because at the time in America, the only Australians that my peers had heard of, unfortunately, I managed to time moving to America with the rise of Steve Irwin. And so that was one cultural reference that my peers knew and they all watched The Crocodile Hunter. So I got 90,000 Crocodile Hunter jokes every year. Um, and then the, the other reference that they knew was a horrible chain restaurant in America that's called Outback Steakhouse, which is not, which is not run by Australians. Um, but has an Australian theme. And so that was it. There were the Outback Steakhouse ads and Steve Irwin and me. And <laughs> that, was, that was all my peers knew of, knew of Australia back then. So it was, it was an interesting kind of culture clash. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Sarah, at high school you were discovering poetry and also taking piano very seriously. What happened with your dad just before a big audition? 
in in senior year of high school or in grade 12, I, I was preparing, you know, audition pieces and, and had my heart set on applying to Juilliard and other kind of classical music conservatoriums in America. And then dad had a sort of, we think it was a kind of minor stroke. And then his his health kind of deteriorated and my parents took the decision that we would move back to Australia. And that was really hard because, you know, it, I was pretty Americanized. And then to come back home at that age where you really feel like you have this momentum and all your friends, you know, leaving all your friends behind on another continent, it was a big shift. But, you know, dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's that same year, the year that I finished high school and the sort of prospect of paying for his care in an American health system where insurers can can choose to basically let you go as a client if you get a diagnosis like that. And so my parents took the decision to move us home and and, you know, I came home. That's such a huge diagnosis to get of Parkinson's. How did your parents react to that news in the early days? I think mum Mum was even more devastated than dad because her own mother had had Parkinson's. So she had seen it with her own mum and her mum, her mum passed away. And it was, I think, within the same 12 months that dad was diagnosed. So just horrendous kind of timing. And, and for dad too, he was so young when he got his diagnosis. He was only 64, I think, or 63. And he was still incredibly intellectually active, you know, was publishing research, was by that stage president of one mining company and a vice president of another smaller mining company at the same time in Colorado. He had this brilliant kind of career. And then to sort of have that cut short it's just devastating when you still feel like you're in the prime of your intellectual life. It's it's a really frightening diagnosis as well. And, you know, I think people think of Parkinson's just as the, the sort of gait issues, the issues with walking, the shuffling and the, the tremors, you know, the shakes in the hand. But it also is, is quite a devastating diagnosis as far as your your brain goes, your, you know, your neurological kind of capacity can diminish with Parkinson's, your personality can change. It's really quite frightening thing to be diagnosed with. And so dad was devastated. Was he angry, Sarah? Yeah, he was. And who wouldn't be? I mean, I think that's a human reaction to feel rage at your fate, knowing that, uh, you know, Parkinson's is also not a terminal disease either. So you don't, die with it and you have to live with it for as long as you live with it. And so for dad to know that there would be this progressive kind of uh, contraction in his capacity to move, in his both his sort of physiological health, but also his, his sort of neurological health, I think that was... I, th- I think the rage was was totally justified and I understand why people feel so angry with the world when you get a diagnosis like that. Did his health go downhill very quickly? So it didn't. Um, so we moved back to Australia in 2000 and he, he was he remained really sort of mentally active, unsurprisingly for dad, all the way for, for about sort of 12 or 13 years. He was continually still trying to teach him new things. So years and years into his diagnosis, he taught himself how to play the harmonica. You know, he was also an amateur composer. So he was composing concertos, piano concertos, using software well into his Parkinson's diagnosis, reading a book a day, um, learning about astronomy, 
all that sort of stuff was still going on all the way through his diagnosis. So he remained he remained sort of mentally alert for, for quite a long time, even though there were sort of subtle changes and then bigger changes in his personality. Well, tell his me cogn- about, about those, Sarah. Like, what did you start to notice that was different in, say, the way your dad was dealing with you or with, with other people in his life? I think it came in stages. Uh, so the first thing was he, he became quite angry and would snap a little bit and and that was very unlike Dad who had such a calm demeanour and was really hard to ruffle um, and he was very easily kind of riled and became quite possessive of things. So he, I remember him flying off the handle because I'd borrowed a stapler without asking, you know, totally unlike his his personality. And then and then the, the sort of shifts became larger uh, and his personality really morphed for a time into something that I that I didn't recognise at all. In what ways? Um, Dad had always been, like I said, so generous as an intellectual mentor, you know, so kind, would talk me through anything as a child and had always celebrated and pushed me forward. And I remember when I was a kid, he said to me, you know, you'll be the second Holland bat with a PhD in this family. He was such a, he was so sort of firmly on my side but as his Parkinson's progressed, he became quite competitive in, in really unfortunate ways where he never had been before. Uh, and obviously that's that was hard for me to deal with. I think it I think he began to, I suppose, look back on his life and think of all of the things that he could have done and didn't do, which was just absurd because he did more things than anyone I've I've ever known. But one of the things that he loved and never had done much was writing. Uh, And when I started to sort of publish my first poems and then my first book, dad's brain just kind of seized on that and he became quite competitive about it. You know, he would compulsively sort of Google his own name. And because he published quite a lot of research, you know, dad used to be the Holland bat that would come up when you when you Googled because he had this whole career of engineering research. But then when I started to publish things, I suppose, you know, my name would come up uh, because the things I was publishing were more recent or whatever. And he became um, he became quite competitive about that and then ultimately became uh, intent on becoming, you know, he said to me, I'm going to become the famous Holland Bat, not you, which was just not dad at all. And so he he said, told me that he would he was going to write a novel uh, to become more famous than I was. And bearing in mind, I'm not famous. I'm a poet from the Gold Coast. Um, <laughs> and poets in this country, you know, are not not celebrities by any stretch. Um, but, so that's a little disclaimer, a little, a little caveat. But yeah, he became, he became obsessed with this idea of, you know, in some way overtaking me. And so he, he said he would write a novel and then he did. He wrote an entire novel for about a year it took him a kind of science fiction novel, which was very sort of, it, it was a meta commentary on what was going on in his life. The, the the protagonist was a kind of 68-year-old metallurgical engineer from Leeds, exactly like Dad, who could control the universe with his mind. So at the very moment that Dad was losing control of his life, he was writing this kind of narrative in which he was gaining control of his life and in which he was, in fact, in control of the universe. Um, and in the novel, Mum doesn't exist and I don't exist. So he sort of wrote he wrote us he wrote us out. But you know, in the novel, he sort of saves the galaxy. It's it's a science fiction novel, and it was it was the most surreal thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life to have Dad do that. And did you talk to him about it? The fact that it was his life, but without you and without your mum. I did, but you know, it's funny. He sort of 
lived in he lived in that world a little bit for a while and sometimes he would talk and it was almost as though he was talking within the world of his novel. Did his attitude to money change at all? I know that's a common thing for people with Parkinson's. Yeah, so some people with Parkinson's, you know, can can blow their entire life savings, can become compulsive gamblers. Dad, fortunately, was not quite that bad, but he did, you know, he he was able to to use the internet and go internet shopping for a very long time, which can be quite dangerous if you're not totally in control of what you're doing and buying. And so I guess the apex of this or the culmination of this was when dad decided to buy a vintage Jaguar car on eBay, sight unseen, which was around the time when, when mum and I were thinking that it was soon, soon he would have to surrender his driver's license. Oh. You know, and he bought this. It was stunning. He had good taste. Dad had good taste. It was bottle green, this beautiful kind of vintage jag. And he, he bought that and with no discussion, didn't even tell mum, didn't discuss it with mum, just bought it for himself. It was lovely, uh, but he wasn't really able to drive it for very long. And unfortunately, because his because his cognition was going, he tinkered with it, you know, and kind of essentially broke parts of it, tinkering around with it, trying to improve it. So it became, you know, this sort of sad, symbolic illustration of of what was going on in his mind, the car and the novel. This must have been so hard, I mean, painful for you and and for your mum. You were in your 20s. It's a time when most of us are setting off on our own journeys and and moving away from family. Was there ever a time, Sarah, that you, you wanted less contact or just thought this was too difficult to be around your dad as, as that Parkinson's was, was taking hold of the man that you knew? Look, it was it was devastating. The, the thing that sort of got me through it, I think, was that I always remembered what a good man he had been. And it was very, very, you know, in my head, the kind of man my father was is 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 crystal clear because he was so consistent. He was he was you know the most wonderful man all through my childhood. So I did find it, I suppose, easier to distinguish what I thought were Parkinsonian kind of behaviours from dad. But it was it was absolutely horrifying to kind of watch it happen and. And I know mum mum found it extremely difficult as well, you know, the man that she'd known and loved for so long, totally changing in that way. Uh, But, you know, I'm an only child and I didn't want to leave mum to deal with it on her own as well. And I felt a kind of responsibility because dad had looked after me so well when I was a kid. After 14 years of caring for him at home, you and your mum moved your dad into an aged care home. How difficult was that transition for him? Look, it was really difficult, but it got to the stage where it was literally not possible to care for him at home because there was such a risk that he would fall on mum and injure her, fall, you know, he was falling a lot falling and hurting himself but it was it was obviously devastating i mean it's really hard to be separated from a family member like that no matter how much you visit there's always a part of you worrying about them and and for dad it was difficult he was quite depressed we visited all the time as much as possible but you know i had a job mum mum you know had had the right to have a, a life outside of looking after dad as much as she could as well how did you and your mum go about choosing a home for your dad so we looked at a bunch of them um and we 
probably in retrospect placed a little bit too much emphasis on how nice it seemed, you know, the environment, because you want it to feel like a home. You know, you're moving someone out of their home. We found one that we thought seemed, we thought it seemed very welcoming. It had a beautiful garden. It had a fountain at the heart of the garden. There was nice art on the walls. The rooms were quite spacious. They were single rooms with their own ensuite. And it seemed to be the best one that we could find. And once your dad was settled into this this aged care home, what did you and your mum start noticing about his care? First of all, it was small things. So you know, we, we noticed that he would be dishevelled or we'd find him with food on his face or food on his clothes that was clearly dried and had been there for a time that made me question whether he whether he was wearing the same clothes as the day before. There were smaller things, grazes, cold sores, infections and things that, that didn't seem to be being noticed. And so we would sort of raise those. Uh, and then the, the sort of first major thing was that we realised belatedly that dad had been placed on a a second medication that was counterindicated against his Parkinson's medication, which, which rendered it, you know, kind of ineffectual. So essentially for a period of time, he was without his Parkinson's meds and the Parkinson's meds, they help you coordinate yourself. If you, if you have that kind of shuffle difficulty walking, Matapar, which is the main drug that they give to Parkinson's uh, sufferers, you know, helps you coordinate your movements. And so dad was without that for, for quite a while. Uh, and then he fell and broke his hip. And so that was basically the end of him being mobile. Was there enough staff when you'd visit? Oh God, no, no. I mean, the thing, the thing that was most shocking was that, you know, you would look for help and there would just be nobody. I would walk the length of his building and not find a soul. And there were very few nurses. Uh, most of the staff were personal care workers who, who are not, you know, really medically trained. And they were they really, some of them displayed a total ignorance of dad's conditions and requirements. You know, I would have, I would have sometimes they would say to me things like, oh, the trouble with your dad is he, he just doesn't retain any instructions. And I would have to sort of explain to them that he had Parkinson's and dementia, and that that meant that he wasn't going to retain any instructions. And then what did you hear from a staff member about a particular staff member and your dad? So this so this was really quite distressing. A whistleblower came forward to my mother to to tell mum that she had been made aware that one of the carers was deliberately kind of victimising and abusing dad, was taunting dad. So dad at this point was was wheelchair bound, so he was he wasn't able to get himself in and out of bed. He needed help with that. So he he was immobile, and she would come into his room and taunt him and tell him that his fresh nappies incontinence pads were out in the hall and that he could get them himself. She pushed his wheelchair away from his bed so he couldn't try to get himself out of bed. And when he was unclean and needed a shower, she shut the door on him and told the other care workers that he was sleeping when he wasn't, when he was awake. And so it was really sadistic abuse, just abuse. There's no other word for it. Sarah, have been so distressing to hear. When when this whistleblower told your mum, what what action did you and and she take? Oh, my God. I I cannot even describe the rage. I I still can't even. It was like a haze of red, you know, that kind of 
cliche. It was a bit like that. I was so, I've never been more angry about anything in my life. Um, and so we went to a meeting with the, the manager and the care manager. And this meeting happened on St. Patrick's Day. And I remember this like it was yesterday. The facility manager came to this meeting to discuss someone victimising my father wearing a, a shamrock necklace for St. Patrick's Day, this big garish necklace. I remember sitting in that meeting, looking at that necklace and thinking, this person does not understand the magnitude or the seriousness of what we're talking about here. There's a total kind of disconnect between dad being a person with a right to dignity, with a right to not be treated, you know, in this appallingly sadistic way. And the way the kind of facility went about it, which was essentially, they weren't really concerned about the allegations. They were concerned about figuring out who the whistleblower had been. The manager kept saying, well, you know, that that whistleblower should have come to us, not to you. So did they remove that carer? They didn't. They didn't because they wouldn't do anything about it until the whistleblower basically identified herself to them. So I, at that point, decided to go to the police, filed a report with the police explaining all of this. And, you know, it's it's unfortunately, the police were very sympathetic, but there's not much protection for, for older people in, in aged care facilities. Negligence, deliberate negligence, apparently is not a criminal offence. It's a civil it's a civil kind of issue. So if we'd wanted to do anything, mum and I would have had to retain a lawyer and sue the woman ourselves. Uh, and that point, then I then I went to the regulator. I've, I lodged a formal complaint. I went to elder abuse. I, I, I went basically everywhere I could. And I'm pretty, you know, like I'm my father's daughter. I'm pretty tech savvy. I looked it all up forensically at every kind of avenue where I could complain. I did complain. Um, The regulator did absolutely nothing. They did not investigate. They didn't do a visit. They didn't interview anyone. They just asked the provider to provide a report and the regulator accepted that. I was just sleepless and so was mum. I felt absolutely sick in my stomach knowing that this this person was still in the system, was still in the facility with dad, and they, they'd moved her to a different wing and said to us, oh, well, we'll make sure that, you know, your father doesn't see her. And I said, I don't want her caring. She shouldn't be caring for anybody. She will do it to someone else if she's done it to dad. You know, dad at one point rang me and said, I've seen that woman again, and he was really distressed. And that was the point where I absolutely kind of just lost it. And so I went to the whistleblower and I said that we would support her, but that we were asking her to come forward so that something could be done about this person who just was so inappropriate, clearly inappropriate to be in that kind of role. And so very bravely, the whistleblower did come forward. And at that point, uh, I was notified by the facility manager that the abusive carer no longer worked at that particular nursing home effective immediately. And like anyone would, I took that to mean that she'd been fired. Uh, And it was only at the end of last year that I discovered that she hadn't been fired at all. She'd been moved to a different facility under under the aegis of the same provider. Tragically, your dad's story isn't unique and there's been this Royal Commission into Aged Care. You gave evidence to that last year, Sarah. Did that feel like you you were being listened to, that that what was going on in, in situations like your dad's was being taken seriously? I think it is being taken very seriously by the Royal Commission. The question is whether it's actually being 
taken seriously by the Prime Minister and the Aged Care Minister? And I think those are two very separate kind of questions. I have been very frustrated at the total kind of lack of leadership and inaction at a federal level on aged care, which, as we know now at the moment, is, is, is on horrific display. As you and your mum were fighting for better care for your dad, he was, of course, getting older and and getting sicker. What were things like by the beginning of this year for him? Uh, so by the beginning of the year, you know, dad, dad really had lost all quality of life. So after that incident with the abusive carer, after breaking his hip, there were still subsequent issues where he fell and broke ribs because, again, no one was there to help him. It was a continual fight to get him what he needed and and he really declined pretty rapidly. So by the beginning of this year, you know, he was he was not in a good state and and psychologically too, he was much, much, much less like himself. You know, it was very sad to see Dad in that way. He would he would cry spontaneously. He was sort of bewildered and lost a lot of the time. But then there were some times where I could still see flashes flashes of dad and only three weeks before dad died, I went to visit him and I just had, you know, decided that I'd bring in some Beethoven for him to listen to because one of his huge, huge passions was classical music um, and he loved Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And so I took that in and we sat and listened to the entire final movement with the Ode to Joy, you know, the kind of choral movement together. And, you know, he, he cried a little bit during that, but I could tell he was enjoying it so, so much. So he's still there were still small ways that we were able to inject some joy into dad's life. But, you know, there comes a time where where there's little joy to be had. Despite the real anguish of those years that he spent in aged care, did he have a good death, Sarah? Oh, he did. So, I mean, I'm so grateful. Dad passed away on March the 7th and that was just prior to the time where it would have been really difficult to visit him in his aged care facility and he was hospitalised and I was so grateful, I will remain forever grateful that he received proper palliative care in a hospital, that every kind of need that he had was met quickly and professionally. He would have had a different death if he'd died in aged care, and that's that's just the truth. Mum and I went in every day. We brought in all the old photo albums. We told all the old family stories. I was able to read him an essay that I'd been writing about his father that I'd been researching. I even recorded myself playing the piano and came in and, and played him a recording of me playing one last time. I'm getting emotional now. But you know, I am I am so grateful that he died when he did. You wouldn't want you wouldn't want your parent to be dying now in an aged care home. This all happened so recently. How have the months since been for you, Sarah? I think pretty surreal. Um I think after a death, usually we we're drawn back to the world. You know, you want you want to sort of start living again, and you want to you want to feel normal. And I think in any other year, I probably would have been away on a on a break, on a short holiday, just to sort of recharge my batteries. I would have seen lots more friends than I've seen. I think you know, friends might have even come in from interstate, and none of that's happened because we've been sort of stuck inside. So it's been it's been a very surreal at times quite lonely, but also introspective time. And 
the day dad died, mum and I mum and I went to his nursing home and emptied out his room and I brought loads of his books up to Brisbane with me. And so I've had, you know, I've had the time to kind of go through some of his books and read read his library again. So I mean there are sort of there are pros and cons to being stuck inside this year. It's given me more time to think about dad and less time to block out the grief with life, I suppose. Mm-hmm. This very long chapter in your story of caring for your dad, how has it marked how you see life? I think it's made me realise that, you know, you don't get a second chance at this and you've got to go at life full tilt. And dad did. And knowing that you don't know when something like Parkinson's can come into your life, that that the time that you're well and able to do what you want to do in your life is is finite, I think has really galvanised me. And then the other thing that I've learnt from it is that, that something has to change about our aged care system and that I will keep working on that as much as I can in Dad's memory because I think knowing now what I know, knowing how the system can fail, at every level it failed him, something has to change with the way that we value the lives of older people and the way we care for them as well. Thank you so much for telling his story and yours on Conversations. My pleasure. Podcast. Broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Because Sarah is a poet, we wanted you, pod listeners, to get a chance to hear her reading one of her poems. This is called The Gurney, and she wrote it in response to what she was seeing happen with her dad in his aged care home. I'll let Sarah introduce it, and then she'll read the poem. So once when I went to, to visit Dad, towards the end of his his life, it got increasingly difficult to summon up the energy to go and visit him. And I would sometimes sit in the car and try and, you know, before going into his aged care home and try and think of things that I could say to cheer him up or good stories I could tell him. And so I'd just done that and kind of plucked up the energy to go in. And I opened the door to his nursing home and walking in, uh, I found in the hallway right near Dad's room a gurney with with a dead body on it, with no one attending it, with no one around. Uh, and it was just that was to me the moment that crystallised, I suppose, the, the disregard for the dignity of people in aged care. It was it was a moment I'll remember for the rest of my life. Uh, and I have a poem about it uh, called "The Gurney." Because the gurney is unattended, in the hallway outside my father's room because nobody is guarding its bright metal rails or its silver tongue shrouded with a woolen blanket, because the blanket is a faded shade of red currant, now bitter, now sweet, because the hallway is empty of everything but soothing lemon wallpaper and the eucalypt sting of disinfectant, I am almost beside it before I see the unmistakable topography of a body, troughs and peaks, a rough silhouette as though earth is piled up there underneath. 
The hairs on my arms rise stiffly, like the prickling pelt of a nettle leaf. And as if I have suddenly held copper wire to current, I am seized with an uncontrollable shudder, summoned from some primordial place behind the daylight mind. Mortal voice, speak. Don't move, I want to say. I'll get somebody. But I do not know to whom I am speaking. I do not know whose body I will raise. There is no helping what is beyond help, no speaking to what is beyond speech. My father's voice pipes from his room, a rising inflection that means he is arguing with the nurse about his medication. And I am woozy, ecstatic. This body is not his. He is still wrapped in his voice. If I shook him, he would rattle with it. It would spear from him like a germinating seed, the green pellet of it spiking open, rolling his life out on gimbling wheels. listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au/conversations.